0: Those are some very uplifting songs we got to sing and to hear this morning, which uh, I think always tunes the heart for the Word of God, and that's what we're going to do right now as we get into God's Word today. Our series, I Met Jesus, introduced us last week to uh, three people well-known in the New Testament, all of them related, two sisters and a brother, Mary, Martha, and And Lazarus. And just to uh, remind ourselves of who they were, these were good friends of Jesus. Jesus, they lived in Bethany. Jesus would oftentimes go there, eat there, spend the night there. So these were definitely people in his inner circle. Martha, the oldest. And the pictures that we get of her sort of fit the stereotype of the oldest sister. And right now I just want to say, if you happen to be an older sister, and by that you think I'm inferring that you might be controlling and bossy, I want you to realize that I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about all the other oldest sisters that are here in the room today. So rest assured. Mary, middle, Of the three, Mary is famous for her extravagant devotion uh, to Jesus. In fact, in the next chapter, she is going to take very expensive perfume, maybe up to $50,000 an ounce in our currency, and is going to anoint Jesus with that perfume and wipe uh, his feet with her hair. So, truly a very heart-devoted follower of Jesus. And then finally, you have Lazarus the youngest brother, the youngest of three. In all the passages about Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, Lazarus is never recorded as saying anything. But then again, he had two oldest sisters, which I think explains a lot. Now I want to summarize what we saw in John 11, uh, verses 1 through 27, very quickly, because we're going to pick up the story then where we left off last week. Jesus is in another part of the country. And Lazarus takes ill. Mary and Martha send word to Jesus, the one that you love is sick. Jesus gets the news and he doesn't do what we'd expect him to do. We'd expect him maybe to drop all his things, rush to Bethany, heal him, and be on his way. Jesus doesn't do that. He stays where he is and says to his disciples that, this illness would be for God's glory. Well, Lazarus dies. Jesus knows that he dies, heads for Bethany, arrives four days after, uh, after Lazarus' death. He's been in the tomb for four days, according to the custom of the day. And he arrives, and Martha hears that he's coming. And so before he actually gets into the village of Bethany, Martha rushes out to him and says to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Jesus says to her, your brother will rise again. Martha hears that and interprets those words through the grid of her theology. And her theology was the same as, the, as everybody else in the, in the Jewish culture of the day. That resurrection is something that happened at the end of time. It happened at the consummation of all things. So she says, yes, I know my brother will rise again someday. What she is missing, and this becomes a key part in this whole story, she she doesn't realize who Jesus really is. She doesn't realize the full majesty and the power and the authority that is his. And so Jesus is not meaning that Lazarus will rise again someday. He is meaning that Lazarus is going to rise again today, right? Today, in fact, right now. And then he says a very important verse in scripture verse 25 and this is key to the whole chapter i am the resurrection and the life he who believes in me though he die yet shall he live and as we talked about last week who can make a statement like that a total nut job can make a statement like that but nobody listens to him or god can make a statement like that And indeed, this is what this statement is. It is the statement of the Son of God who has authority over this world and the next. And we're going to see him exercise that authority in a moment. And he asked Martha finally, do you believe this? And that question rings through time. It rings into this room here today. Do you believe that personally, you, that he is the resurrection and the life? So that's where we ended it. We pick it up now in verse 28 as the other sister, Mary, now uh, comes into the story. When she had said this, this is Martha, she went and called her sister Mary saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her Mary, in the house, consoling her, saw Mary quickly rise and go out. They followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And we'll stop there. All right, so Martha returns back to the house somehow says to mary in private maybe whispers in her ear jesus is out outside the village and he wants to speak to you now mary we know has this real devotion and love for jesus no doubt both of them for four days had been thinking to themselves if only he had been here so she jumps up rushes out of the house rushes over to where uh, jesus is The other mourners who are there in the house, according to the custom of the day, they would come and they would gather and they would cry with the family. Uh, They see her rush out and in their mind they're thinking, well, where else would she be going than back to the tomb and to cry at the tomb? Let's go with her. And so you got to see the scene now. The house is there in Bethany. Jesus is outside the village. Martha has returned, spoken to Mary. Mary is, is rushing out to where Jesus is at. Behind her is this trail of, uh, of, of people, mourners, thinking she's going to the tomb, which she's not. And so they all arrive there where Jesus is. And the text says that Mary arrives and falls at Jesus' feet. It's interesting to note in Scripture This is Mary's most familiar place, at the feet of Jesus. We know from Luke 10, remember, Martha's scurrying around, taking care of preparations. Where's Mary? She's at the feet of Jesus. In the next chapter, she comes in, anoints him, and washes his feet with her hair. Where is Mary? At the feet of Jesus. And here now, she comes and falls at the feet of Jesus. You know, if you're known in Scripture for being at the feet of Jesus, that's a high compliment, don't you think? And we see that with Mary. She's at his feet and she expresses her grief, but does so by repeating almost word for word exactly what Martha said. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when you see repetition like that in scripture, you need to note it, maybe highlight it because it's there for a reason. And the reason I think it's here is to help us understand why Jesus is going to feel and express the emotions that he does in just a moment. And I think that many people don't understand why Jesus is so emotional. And I just want you to, this sets the stage for it. Because what we see in the story of John is that John's purpose in, in the telling of this story is to unveil the true person of Christ, to unveil his true glory. From John 1, in the beginning was the word, all the way to the end in his resurrection, John is wanting the reader, in this case us, to understand who he truly is. And yet, what we find in the story is that the people that were there with him, indeed the closest people in his life, didn't realize who he was they got a little bit of it but they did not understand his full glory and so we've seen that in the story he says uh he says i'm the bread of life and what is that narrative surrounded by the feeding of the fifteen thousand? he says i am the light of the world and then what does he do he makes the blind man to see and here now he's standing next to the grave or near the grave of a friend and he says i am the resurrection and the life Martha doesn't understand it. Mary doesn't understand it. The disciples clearly didn't understand it because they have no idea why they're going to Bethany in the first place. The mourners are arriving. They don't understand who Jesus is. And none of them realize what's about to happen. And so you have this case of mistaken identity. And Jesus looks at his friends. He looks at his disciples. He looks at the grave. He sees the mourning. And he thinks to himself, nobody understands me. And that is, I think, underlying this story. And is it really all that different than you and me? What do we want more than anything else? We want to be known. We want to be loved. And we want to know and love somebody else. And we see in this Jesus' humanity where he wants people to know him. I think it's still true to this day. He wants people to know who he truly is. And we see in this that they don't. I thought of a scene from the movie mr holland 's opus, where uh, the the family the holland family he 's a, a music teacher, they have a child, and they discover that this child is deaf, and music was so important to him and all the rest and you can see how this created this tension and there 's one scene in particular so powerful where the the mother is is just weeping and weeping because and, and, and he comes mr Holland comes to him and says to her and says why are you weeping and she just she just says I want to know my son she couldn't communicate with him she wanted to know him and that I think is true for all of us here we want to be known we want to be loved and we want to know and love someone else this whole passage unveils the humanity of Jesus in a most powerful way and we see it even here they don't realize who he is and the possibility of what Jesus is about to do hasn't landed on anybody's mind and and so I want you to realize that as well if we read the story here and everyone's thinking to themselves well Jesus is going to arrive he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead then we'll go out and have tea it would sort of feel artificial wouldn't it and people would read it and go there's nothing to it but you see in the story nobody's thinking about that and he even says I'm the resurrection and nobody still is thinking about that So with that now, look at verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who have opened the eyes of the blind man also kept this man from Dying. All right, Bethel Church, this is a passage that we have to come to reverently. Other than the Garden of Gethsemane, this is the most personal, the most emotional, the clearest demonstration of the humanity of Jesus to be found in all of recorded scripture. And I want to walk through that and make sure that we understand this because there's wonderful, reassuring truths for each of us here in the passage. Notice that it expresses his emotion in three places. In verse 33, first of all, it says that he was deeply moved and greatly troubled. They struggle here to translate the Greek word, all right? It, it definitely means that deep-seated emotion, which all of us understand when we are deeply moved by something. Something stirs down deep inside of us, right? Where we, our heart kind of goes... Inside, and we're, we're, we've got that sort of emotional thing going on. That's what this word is referring to. However, it also has in its meaning not simply to be moved, but also to be angry or to be indignant. And so you got to combine to understand what this is saying is there is a deep human emotion and there is a deep indignant. See. I don't know if that's a word. But th- those two are coming together here. You've got to understand that to understand what happens in the rest of the passage here. The word here actually is often used for snorting horses. I'll bet you didn't know that. Snorting horses. I grew up around horses. Many of you know that. And one of the things you learn uh, when you're around horses, you've got to be careful when you're around horses because they are big and they are strong. And they can hurt you. And so one of the things that you you learn is, how can you tell when a horse is happy and when a horse is upset? And really, there are two easy ways to do it. Uh, Their ears and their sounds. So with a horse, if if you're by a horse and its ears are forward like this, everything's good. Horse is happy, just ate his oats, everything's good, all right? Like that. When a horse's ears go from this to this, you better look out because that's a horse that's aiming to do something uh, to somebody. And with that, when the ears go back, often they paw and they will make a sound, a kind of snorting sound to indicate that they are not happy about something. And that's when you need to look out. That's what this word has in it. It has in it that sense of deep emotion, but with ears pinned back. Jesus is aiming to do something here. He is not happy at the scene. Look at verse 35. Shortest verse in all the Bible, I think might be filled with the most meaning. It says, simply, Jesus wept. And again, we see his humanity here in a way that I want us just to sit on. Let's talk about the weeping Jesus. Why did Jesus weep? Several reasons. Number one, he was human. He was human. Can you imagine if Jesus had arrived at the scene? He walks into, into Bethany and he's like, where have you laid him? And they're like, he's over there, or let's say over here. He strides over, he goes, Lazarus, come forth. Have a good day. <laughs> we would read the story and we would be like, What? I can't I can't relate. I can't relate to somebody who shows up at the death of one of his closest friends and is like, Mr. Stoic? I can't relate to somebody like that because you and I know when we show up at the death of a loved one, when we're standing next to the casket, what do we feel inside of us? We feel emotion. And what wells up from that emotion? Out comes tears and out comes weeping. This is what it means to be human. And so we look at the Savior of the world. Born of a virgin, born by the Holy Spirit, we get his deity, but sometimes we struggle to see him as a man, human. And then we come to a passage like this, and praise God, we look at it, and what do we see? We see him acting and feeling like we do. I, I can relate to somebody who shows up in a morning moment and cries. I can relate to that. And it gives me hope that maybe he can relate to me in my tears. In fact, feelings are a huge part of what it means to be human. We have feelings. You're having feelings right now. Your feelings right now are going to be different than the feelings you have this afternoon and different than the feelings that you have tomorrow. And we're not to be ruled or governed by our feelings, but Having feelings is a huge part of what it means to be human. And that's good. And Jesus had them. And so I just want to say to you, look carefully at these words. If you're here today and you are sorrowing, you are troubled, if you were to be honest in this place, you would cry right now. And you might be wondering, does the Jesus of Christianity, does he understand the sorrows in my life? I want you to see that Jesus wept. Or if you're here and you are grieving and mourning the loss of a loved one, maybe this last year, you're going to come to our Christmas together banquet and you're going to, you're going to remember that loved one and you will do so with tears and you're wondering if maybe you lack faith because you're still crying about it. I want you to see in the passage, Jesus wept, which brings a glory and a dignity to the grieving and mourning that we do at The loss of a loved one. Jesus wept. Littlest verse in the Bible, perhaps filled with the most meaning. Don't we love that verse? Praise God for that verse. Hebrews 4.15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect been tempted as we are yet without sin. You could wonder today if Jesus feels. Does he feel for you? Does he feel for you in your pain? Does he feel for you in your undesirable circumstance? I want you to hear very clearly on this day that Jesus wept. He feels. He's human. We can relate to him and he can relate to us. The second reason that Jesus wept is that in this moment, he was personally experiencing the misery of being human. He steps into this scene. His friend is dead, been dead for four days. His two friends are weeping and crying, one laying at his feet in grief. Mourners are gathering around. They're crying because that's what they did. What is this scene if it is not a picture of the misery of our condition? We are all terminal. We are all going to die. And we can glam ourselves up. We can bling ourselves up. We can Botox ourselves up. But the fact of the matter is, is that we are all dead men and women. We're all terminal. And this reality if we really think about it apart from God, is depressing. It's the misery of our condition. That's why there are hospitals all over the country, because we are dying day after day. And Jesus now stands there in the midst of this scene, and he feels within his heart the hopelessness of our situation. And he felt the despair of death. Another reason that Jesus wept is that in this moment, he saw who the real enemy is. The real enemy is death. I will never forget the very first dead body I ever saw. Maybe you could think about in your life. What was the first dead body that you ever saw? I was in like fourth grade, and I was attending a Christian school that met at a church, and I was cruising the hallways I don't know if I had a pass or if I was just plain delinquent but I was cruising the hallways and I was in the back hallway near the auditorium of this church and I'm skipping along and I see this big wooden box in the hallway and being a boy which requires us to investigate everything I'm like oh I wonder what's inside there and so I went up to the edge of the big wooden box and I like peeked over the edge like this and there about four inches from my face was a dead face. <laughs> and I remember it terrified me. And my memory is, is that I just went running down the hallway as fast as I could. First dead body I ever saw. I won't forget it. It is still unnerving to me to see a dead body. When I go to a viewing or I do a funeral, I've done many funerals, speaking from right here with the casket right here in front, the top open, it is unnerving to see a dead body to this day, especially if I knew the person because I've only ever known that body to be alive. I've only known those eyes to be open. I've only known the uh, smile and for there to be an animation life, for that body to be alive. And when you see a body that is dead and there's there's no... There's no life there. It is a reminder to us who the real enemy is. Our real enemy today, it's not your neighbor, it's not your boss, it's not your older sister. Our real enemy is death. And Jesus stands at this scene, and the poignancy and the power of this enemy is right there in his face. He was staring the enemy down. 1 Corinthians 15, 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Why did Jesus come? Lots of reasons we could point to. But one of the big ones is that he came to defeat our enemy. And we talked about this when we studied 1 Corinthians 15. Remember the bee illustration. How did Jesus defeat the enemy? He took the sting of death for us. And so as Jesus stands there, he sees death in all of its stark reality. And I think in that moment, he feels that confrontation that is about to happen. He sees in Lazarus's death, his own death, he sees why he has come. It's almost like it's almost like the you know, two, two uh, armies kind of staring at each other before going to war. This is like the initial skirmish right here. He sees the enemy, and it's a foreshadowing of what is to come. And he wept over it. And the final reason, I think, and this is the reason that the text calls us to see, is that he was Indignant. He was indignant. He was upset. He was mad in a righteous way. I think he was indignant to see this and to realize that God created a perfect creation, that God breathed into man the breath of life. He became a living soul. God gave to us a, a, a soul that would live on forever. And to see death in this way, especially with friends, he was reminded... Of this perfect creation, the corruption and the perversion and the, the twisting of what God had made and how sin and death and temptation and Satan and just all of this came in and just bleh, this whole creation corrupted the cosmos. And he stands there, having just said, I am the resurrection and the life. And he sees the entire scene. And you know what happens as he looks at all of this? We see here the son of God pinning his ears back. He's indignant. And like a horse with the ears pinned back, he aims to do something about it. And there is that sense in the text. In fact, uh, Calvin says that that here Jesus, uh, like a champion, strides to the conflict. Jesus now, son of God, resurrection in the life, says, where is he? I love it. And you sort of see him. If he had spurs on, I'd be like, "Kaling, kaling, (laughs) kaling." And now we have a display of divine power. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Martha, ever the oldest sister, feels the need to speak into the moment and to correct Jesus for something that apparently in her mind he had forgotten. Jesus, don't you realize that, you know, After four days, there's going to be an odor. And so I, you know, feel the need to point that out to you right now. And I just sort of see Jesus going, Martha, 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 you know, (laughs) what? Sometimes oldest sisters just need to shut up. All right. So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you. wow can you imagine the scene i mean there, they're, they're the, everyone's crying everyone's weeping all the mourners are there the whole scene you can just sort of see it in your mind and jesus says where is he he's over here and he offers a prayer which i think is noteworthy here we are ending our week of prayer jesus offered a prayer and then the miracle happened just made me wonder perhaps god we don't see god doing as much as we would want to see him do because we don't pray as much as we should jesus prayed then the miracle happened and he says that his prayer was so that the people around would know that this is about his relationship with his heavenly father he said it for their benefit and now these words exercising authority that only god can have he says lazarus come out Now let's take this in slow motion. What is actually happening here? Lazarus died four days prior. The Bible tells us that we have a material self and we have an immaterial self. I have a body, but then I have the real me, the person me, my personality, my soul is within me. Death is the breaking of those two parts of who I am. My body stays here. My soul goes to be with God. So Lazarus, four days prior, had died. And when he died, his body died. His body stayed there. His soul went into the next world, went to be with God. Jesus stands outside of the tomb. And with power that only he has, he says, Lazarus, come out. And in that moment, the Lazarus who was with God, the soul of Lazarus, is brought back and united with this dead body that's laying in the grave. And that combination is reconstituted in such a way that Lazarus comes back to life. Now, who has authority to do that with a word? Who has authority in this world and in the next world to bring those two things back together? Only God has that kind of authority. And that is why we see this miracle again, a demonstration of who he is, the unveiling of his glory and majesty to speak into the next world and for it to bring a man to life in this one. Only God can do that. Now, that's about all that we know. And so I want to ask... This question, why did Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead? What is this all about? And there are two reasons I think that we need to ponder here today. The first is to demonstrate his authority and to prove his claim to be the resurrection and the life. You know, I think Jesus recognized it's one thing to make a claim. Anybody can make a claim to anything. You can claim to be the, the Easter bunny or some other silly thing. People can say anything that they want to. It's a whole nother thing to back up the claim and to prove that what you've claimed is true. And so we see then in the life of Jesus that what he's doing here is that he is saying, this is who I am. And so that you can understand that this really is who I am. I am going to do a miracle that is commensurate with the claim. So again, he claims to be the bread of life. What did he do? He multiplied bread and fed 15,000. He claims to be the light of the world. What did he do? He made a blind man to see. He claims to be the resurrection and the life. What did he do? How do you validate a claim of that enormity? Well, I would say raising a man back from the dead who's been dead four days is a pretty good way to do it. And that's exactly what Christ did. And I want to say here today uh, that if you look in the text, you can look ahead, we're not going to spend time, you can read it later today if you'd like, that there were two responses to what Jesus did. It says that many of the Jews who had come with Mary, this is verse 45, and seen what he did, believed in him. And I'll bet that they did. If you were at a funeral, and the preacher said, come forth, and he did, you'd say, I'm going to that guy's church. That is my kind of pastor right there. That's a guy that I'll listen to, right? It validates what you're saying. And so the people that were there, many of them saw Lazarus come out. And he's, you know, he's kind of doing this hop thing, unbind him and let him go. And they're just, <sighs> I think that he is the Messiah. I think he is the resurrection and the life. But notice in the text, surprisingly, that there's a whole nother group of people who saw the miracle and what they do is they take off running and they go and tell the Pharisees what Jesus has done. And the Pharisee's response is, He's raising people from the dead. If this keeps going, everyone's going to believe in Him. We've got to do something to stop Him. Which is so stupid to me, isn't it? But what it shows is something that is eternally true. If you don't want to believe, guess what? You will not believe. And even if somebody raises somebody from the dead in your presence, you will not believe. Willful unbelief cannot be convinced. And so we had these two responses, and we have those same two responses here in this room today. There are some of us who see this, and our hearts are encouraged, our faith is enlivened. We think about it being the resurrection of the life. We walk out of here today, and we're like, Yeah! And there will be some who will leave here today shaking your head saying, I can't believe those crazy people believe that stuff. It was true in Jesus' day as well. I would say to you, if you see this and you don't believe it, what would it take to prove it? Like, what would it take for, to prove that Jesus is the Son of God if raising somebody from the dead doesn't do it? You might say, well, I'd say that if he was dead and he came back to life, that might do it. Keep reading. He does that too. What do you want in a Savior? What do you want in a a Messiah that you don't find in somebody who's doing stuff like this? And might the issue not be that there is not enough evidence, but rather like the Pharisees, you are just resolute not to believe. And I say that tenderly to you because it's my will that everybody here would believe. The second reason that this is uh, something that Jesus did, chose to do, is very encouraging. The life and power of God has invaded the misery of this dying world. And brings hope. Hope for all who believe. I said earlier in the message, we are all, we're all dead men and women. We're all dying. The misery of the human condition is we live and we die. And the generations come and the generations go. The sun keeps going around the earth. We have so many revolutions that we get and then we're dead just like everybody before us. There is a certain hopelessness that a rational thinking person has to feel about life and meaning in life and all the rest. Because naturally speaking, nothing matters. If I live my life, I can think that what I do matters and my relationships matter, but in the end, I'm dead in the grave. And if that is the end, and if there is nothing after that, then nothing matters. But what we see here is by miracles like this, that there, that, that, that God has come that light has come into this dark world, that there is a hope and it's a real hope and it's a proved hope that Jesus was the Son of God and that what he said, I am the resurrection and the life, whoever believes in me will never die in the sense of ultimate death, eternal death. And if he can say that and then do that, that speaks to my heart that there's hope hope in this. There is hope in this. There is hope in this world. In fact, the Bible says that this resurrection that we see with Lazarus, in fact, that we see with Jesus himself, is merely the first fruits of a future resurrection for all who believe. In fact, one writer said that Jesus, or that the, Jesus had to say, Lazarus, come forth, because if he didn't use his name, everybody would have come out of the tomb. But Jesus is coming back. And when he returns, this same Jesus who said this and did this said that when I come back, I am going to raise my people back to life. Right? And that's the hope of the gospel. That is our hope. Dead, almost dead person. Your hope today is not in your medicine and not in your doctor and not in not in, in who you are. You're going to die. We all are. My hope is in Somebody who could do that. And made promises then to all who believe that he's coming back and that I will be resurrected from the dead. In fact, 1 Thessalonians 4 describes how this happens. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Why did Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead? Hope. Hope has come. Resurrection has come. Hope for what? Life. When? someday after we die how the same way that we see what Jesus did here he's coming back and it says saying Lazarus come forth it's going to be John come out Susan come out Lucy come out Tom come out Steve come out and you and you and you and you and you you, I think that's what's going to happen And in that moment, in that moment, when we come out, when we are alive again, we will know truly that he is the resurrection and the life. What a powerful statement that is. I am the one who raised those who die back to life, and I give them life without end. Resurrection and life. That's an encouraging word for those who believe. I hope you're one of them today. Let's pray.